probably told you this before, but uh, every week I have a process that I go through uh, as I'm preparing to preach and putting, putting this stuff together. And one of the very last things that I do is I ask myself a few questions. Uh, and these, these questions are, they end up bringing me back around to the, to the importance of a, a certain passage or, or topic that we're dealing with. And one of the questions that I ask myself at the end of all that I've done, studying, writing, all that kind of stuff, uh, is this. What is the price of ignoring this passage? In other words, does this even make a difference, what we're doing in the Word today? And, and I ask that every week, and, and in some ways it's an obvious question. Well, if you, if you disobey, if you ignore the passage, well, that's not honoring to God. Obviously, it's His Word. Well, yes, that's, that's true, but, but I'm talking about in particulars. What kinds of things happen if, if, if we turn our backs on this word and if we decide, no, no, we're going to go a different way and we're not going to obey this calling of Scripture? This one was, I guess, in a special way interesting to me because I, as I asked that question, here's what I wrote down. If we ignore this Scripture today, here's what happens. Broken relationships, discord, divisiveness, deficient witness to the gospel in this neighborhood and city, strife within the church, or, God help us, a splitting of the church. Now, I'm not talking about our church. I'm saying, I'm saying in churches in general, these are the kinds of things that can happen as we walk away from a text like this. But I'd, I'd rather turn it around and say, let's look at this on a positive level. Let's say, well, what are the blessings to obedience in a passage like this. So here's what I wrote down. Unity, growth among all of us in, as individuals and as a group, health, uh, maturity, Christ-like character being fostered and grown, those sound good. Okay, so, so that's where we want to get today. Our, our passage is Philippians chapter 2, first 11 verses. Here's what Paul says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Need to be more Baptist. Amen. That's better. Okay, we'll get going. Okay, so we're going to take this thing into giant pieces today, and, and they're big, big pieces, and I hope, see, it's vital to see how they fit together today, uh, these, these two concepts. Actually, where I'm going, uh, it, it, I'm going to start in the second half of this passage because of the way that I, I think that these fit together, and hopefully you'll see it. Here's where I'm driving at today. The truth about your Christ, the truth about your Christ must drive the shape of your Christianity. 
The truth about Jesus must inform and shape and drive who you are as a Christian. Okay, so I'm going to start in the second half of this, and we're going to look at the truth of your Christ. So I'm in verse 5 and following. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The truth about your Christ. The truth about your Christ, I will say, begins with a mental assessment that Jesus made. In other words, the truth about your Christ starts here in this text with something that Jesus thought. It's a mental decision that he made. You can see it in verse 6. Look with me. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus thought something. That word there, count, is, is interesting. This is a, a thinking word. This is an assessment word. He's looking at something and he's making a decision about it. He's regarding something in a certain way. Now, quite honestly, this text, verse 6, and, and really this entire thing, is so pregnant with meaning. There is huge theology bound up in this. This passage begins with an assumed reality. It's massive in terms of our Christology. What we believe about Jesus is huge in this text. Jesus Christ was equal with God. That's massive. And right there, that, that reality, that text, just dealt with a lot of people that show up on your front door, by the way. Jesus Christ, eternally existent as the second person of the triune Godhead, equal with God in every way. I have to admit that this wording causes me to trip a bit, actually. When, when, when we read verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. What does that mean? See, see, that causes me to trip because as I think of this, I, I start to think, well, what does that mean? He was, he was in some, some shape of godness. What shape is that? The form, really? And the problem comes in how I think of form because instantly as I hear that word, I think in physical terms, physical categories, but that th th there, there is a shape. I mean, if you think about pouring concrete, what do you make? You form it up, and that's the shape that the concrete is going to be in. So I think physically when I hear this word, but this is probably not the best way to think about this word biblically. Form, how we ought to think about it, doesn't have so much to do with a physical form, but a true nature. Truly what something is, in fact, the point is the form expresses itself in a mode of existence. One commentator said this, that form here is that which truly characterizes a given reality. That which truly characterizes a given reality. So Jesus' given reality is equal with God, who's in the form of God. His, his true nature was God. And this sends us down a path of our theology of Christ. So what's the point? 
Though he was in the form of God, his, his true nature and mode of existence, mode of being was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Some people talk about this this being in the form of God and this equality with God. Maybe, maybe the best way that I could think of it uh, is, is his mode of being. You might think the, the divine lifestyle. We've all seen the show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. This is Lifestyles of the Divine. Being in the form of God, being equal with God, what is being spoken of here is what theologians call the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, this is getting way too deep for a Sunday morning. I get it, okay? This means before Jesus was little eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. You remember that? That's Christmas, okay? Before that, Jesus Christ was eternally existent with God the Father, with the Holy Spirit, before his incarnation, the pre-incarnate Christ. And, and the scripture is, is very clear about this, actually. In John chapter 1, we read this. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and we'll see in just a moment, he's speaking of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Later in John's Gospel, we read, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word who was with God in the beginning, before all of creation, is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, speaking of Jesus, Paul says, By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Revelation 22, this is what Jesus means when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, before he is betrayed, he prays to the Father and says, Father, now glorify me in your own presence, listen, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed glory I had with you. You mean, Jesus, there was, there was a you before the manger? Yes. The eternally existent Son of God existing in glory with the Father, with the Holy Spirit before creation. And this is what we mean about being in the form of God. That Jesus in his mode of existence was in endless glory and worship of angels in a relationship of joy and communion with the Father and the Spirit. But listen again to verse 6. Though all of that was true, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I always read this when I was a fir first Christian. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And I always thought that meant, well, he couldn't understand it. He, he couldn't grasp it. 
turns out that's not the way to read that text. What Paul is saying is, is that, that though that was the pre-incarnate Christ, though that was the glory with which he existed, he did not count that mode of existence as equal with the Father, something to be held onto at all costs for his own comfort and advancement and privilege. He did not hold on to that and cling to that. In other words, he was willing to do something else because he considered that not a thing to be held on to. He made a mental decision about his mode of existence. Rather, the text says he did something else. He didn't cling on to that, but verse 7, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Other versions translate that he emptied himself. Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the triune Godhead, existing in perfect unity and harmony with God the Father and Holy Spirit before creation, is willing to let go of that, let go of that mode of being, and empty himself. Over the years, in centuries, people have been caught up on this verse because the debate begins, well, well, what did Christ empty himself of? Maybe he, in some go here, maybe he emptied himself of his divinity. Maybe as he's born in the major, he's no longer God. I've had people tell me that. And the thing is, do you remember when he was born? They said, call him Emmanuel, which means... Yeah, that seems like he's still going to be God, okay? And, and the entire New Testament witnesses to the fact that he is God in the flesh. He is fully God, fully man. Others say, well, no, no, no. He, he emptied himself of his power and attributes as God. So, so, so now, as a human being, he, he can't do the things that God can do. But to me, that seems like a stretch for a guy who raises the dead, walks on water, and calms storms. I'm just saying, okay? Other, other people say, well, maybe he, he emptied himself of the divine glory that was his, and I think that's probably closer. But the thing is, that the ESV probably does it best here. He made himself nothing. He's not talking about something that he emptied himself of. He's saying, in an idiomatic way, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, not grasping that glory that was his before with the Father, but he's willing to let it go and make himself nothing. You see, that's the glory of the gospel. The eternal Son of God is willing to make himself nothing for you and for me. It's an amazing truth. This text actually gets us further. It says, he, he made himself nothing, verse 7, taking the form of a servant. This is actually telling us how he emptied himself, how he made himself nothing, by taking a new form. Remember, that form has to do with mode of existence, right? So now he's taking to himself another mode of existence. It's not the one that's glorious with the Father before creation. Now it's something else. Now it's the mode of existence of a servant or a slave. 
eternal Son of God who voluntarily comes to be born and take on the mode of existence of a slave, someone who, who had no rights, who, who loses their rights. He takes the form of a humble, lowly slave. We'll be on Christmas in no time. And you know the, the nativity scene? It wasn't, it wasn't meant so that you could have a porcelain scene on your table. It was a picture of utter humility. It was a picture of utter contrast. It wasn't a picture of wonder uh, of, of why sheep and cows uh, apparently laid down next to the manger and went like this. That wasn't the point. The point was he's laid in a feeding trough. If there was ever a picture of humility, if there was ever a picture of laying aside glory and honor and, and divine right, it's this. There is, no, there is no birth more humble than this. But he took on the form of a servant, a slave. He gave up his rights. So the truth about your Christ, two things so far. One, he made a mental decision. He thought something, in other words. He thought this isn't worth hanging on to at all cost. Second, he made a concrete action. This is what Christ did. He made himself nothing. He became a servant, a slave. Finally, he made, I'll say this, he made a spiritual choice. This was about who Christ obeyed. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, becoming obedient. First, humility. Humility isn't about you. Does that seem obvious? Humility isn't about you. Many, many people see, I, I think, probably go astray when we think about humility because we think about humility in the sense that I need to make myself lower. I need to make sure that, that I don't stand out. I need to make sure that people think less of me. I need to make sure that I'm not exalted in any way. But see, there's a fundamental error, I think, in that version of humility because at every turn, you're actually thinking about yourself. You're actually focused on yourself. Humility at its core, I think, isn't thinking, it's been said this way, and I think this is good. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's humility, and that's what we see in Christ that he's not thinking of, of himself, he's not focused on himself. Instead, humility is something that rises above and puts the needs and the cares of others before your own. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient. This was the means of his humility. 
obeyed the Father. He, he knew the Father's perfect will. He knew that, that before the foundation of the earth, the plan was for Jesus Christ not only to come in human form, but to die that death of shame and humiliation. Before the foundation of the world, that was the plan. And so Jesus becomes obedient to his father. He makes a spiritual decision. He humbles himself to the point of death. I, I love that Paul continues. Look, look at verse 8. He humbles himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross. See, it's as if Paul wants to say, the entire point of what I'm saying is utter humility. This Jesus lays aside every glory of heaven to come to earth, to be born in a feeding trough, to, to live a humble lifestyle, and finally to, to be killed for sinners. And then he says, even the death of a cross. See, the death of a cross, again, was, was the worst way to die. It, it was such a death that I, I was reading about this historically people in the Roman world would not even mention crucifixion in polite conversation. It was considered rude to even mention it. That's how horrifying it was. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. This was, this was the criminals. These were the people we don't speak of. And the eternal second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is marching out with a cross on his back out of the city. obedience. Christ says, I lay down my life for my sheep. This is the depth to which your Christ emptied himself, humbled himself, obeyed the Father, and the Father stamps his approval on it in verse 9 and following, therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We don't have time to plumb the depths of this doctrine. I want to give you uh, just a couple of verses here to show you what's going on. This is, this is vital to the gospel. Ephesians 1, Paul talks about what is the immeasurable greatness of his, God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, that's a place of honor, a place of authority, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Hebrews 7, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Peter writes, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The truth about your Christ is that he thought his equality with God was not something to be grasped, clung to, Instead, he took on another form, a servant, a slave, 
and he obeyed the Father even to the point of a humiliating death. I told you today there's two things that we're after. The first is the truth about your Christ. That is what we've just painted from this text. The second is, is the shape of your Christianity because believe it or not, God doesn't care that you merely know about his son. Is that shocking to you? God doesn't care that you merely know about his son. God is not concerned with simple information for the people of God. He is concerned with transformation of the people of God. So the second thing we're after is the shape of your Christianity. I'm in verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's interesting, in that section, there's really only one word of exhortation, one calling to the people of God. Paul says, and here's the command, make my joy complete. Make your joy complete. And he'll unpack, here's what it means, and, and all those instructions that we got, those are the ways that, that he's making, that, that we would make the, the apostles' joy complete. But the idea is that, that the apostles' joy is bound up in the people of God. That he saw his one purpose in life to testify to the gospel of God's grace and to build up the church in Christ's likeness, in gospel focus. So he says, make my joy complete by essentially living that out. John shared this same heart in 3 John verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Paul later in Philippians says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. So how is this achieved? How would we bring about this joy? Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I love how Paul starts this. If there's any encouragement, if there's any comfort, if there's any participation in the Spirit, he's looking to a Christian people, and he's not, he's not saying, well, there might be encouragement, and there might be fellowship of the Spirit. There might be comfort from love. He's saying, are, are you Christians? Then there is encouragement. There is this comfort. There is this participation and fellowship in the Spirit of God. And because there is, here's what you ought to do. Be of one mind. Stand united. Have the same love. If you've truly experienced God in this way, here is what you are called to. I mean, I mean think about this for a church. Listen to this. That we, would, that we would have the same love, that we would be in full accord, that we would be of one mind. This is a glorious picture Just amen this. Does this not sound like a glorious picture of church? Doesn't that sound just like a church ought to be? Amen? Doesn't this sound just like every church you've ever attended? Why did the amen stop? 
see, this isn't hard to agree with. It's hard to do. We all understand this is the way it probably ought to be. But it's hard to, to do. It's hard to live out this picture of a community of faith. What's interesting in verse 3, so verse 2, he talks about this great picture of what a church should look like, what it should be, how it should interact. And then verse 3 is where the rubber meets the road. And he starts to put shoe leather on it so that we all amen. Oh, that's what a church should be. That's really wonderful. We wish we had that kind of church. That's fine. Read verse 3 and do that stuff. That's what's going to happen. So let's read verse 3. If you really want that kind of church, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Rivalry elsewhere is translated ambition, and maybe that's a bit easier to understand. Don't do anything which is springing from a selfish, self-promoting spirit. The second is, is very close to it. Not from ambition or rivalry or conceit. That's, that's literally the term in the Old King James, vainglory empty glory. <clears throat> in other words, Paul's saying, don't do anything that, that is so self-promoting and that brings glory to yourself. Because here's what he would say about glory that comes to yourself. Is it full or is it empty? Absolutely empty. Do nothing from that kind of motive. But and this is a strong contrast here, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Listen, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of Sundays that I feel like a complete hypocrite. This is a big one. If you want to know where pastors fall, it's not in moral things. It's in conceit and ambition and vainglory. And I will admit to you that this is where I struggle. I look back over my ministry life, and, and, it, and it's been a fair number of years now, and even this morning I was going through this, and I, I looked back uh, to years ago, and I was in another church, and I'm looking at a season in my life going, that was ambition. It was, that's what it was. And it kills churches and it kills unity. And it kills the fellowship among believers. Paul would have none of it. He says, do nothing. How many things is that, by the way? None. Do nothing from ambition or vain glory because it is vain. There is no glory that lasts other than that which comes to the Son of God. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, ambition or vain glory, but, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You've got to realize the shocking nature of this statement a Roman world. In the Roman world, humility was not a value. I realize it is for us, and over the years, we, humility, we appreciate humility. That's because we, we have a Christian understanding of life, generally. 
Humility is a uniquely Christian value. The Romans hated it because it was, it was like taking the position of a servant. It was like admitting defeat. This was not a value until this Christ comes along and stands up after dinner and girds himself with a towel and washes the feet of his disciples. And all of a sudden, Christians start to say, wait a second. See that moment in the upper room where Christ washes the feet of his disciples? It wasn't the beginning of humility. It was a parable for, for the incarnation. It was a parable of, of the fact that, that he left the glories of heaven, what we already saw, and became a servant. Servanthood is hard. Humility is hard. Because listen to what this says. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, it's not, it's not going around saying, oh, man, Dick's way better than I am. I'm totally lame. Dick's totally not lame. He's better than me. Well, he is in a lot of ways, but that's not what we're after here. What we're after is, is as you think and process your world, you're looking to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and your goal is to think of them first, to think selflessly, to think, dare I say it, like Christ thought. Think of them before you're thinking of your own needs. Be a servant. Take that position among the people of God. That is a huge weight. But it's a glorious thing. We were talking this last week, Corey and I, and he comes up with these one-liners once in a while, so I'll give him credit. He was talking about servanthood, and here's what he said. This is gold. He should put this in a book somewhere. He said, you can tell if you're truly a servant when you're actually treated like one. You can tell if you're truly a servant when you're actually treated like one. See, we like to talk about servanthood, don't we? I mean, like, we're Christians, so it's good to talk about servanthood. And, and, man, can I serve you? Can I do anything for you? And I've been here, okay? This is like the confessions week for a pastor, okay? So I've been here where people are, um, you're talking with them, and it's like, hey, man, if there's anything I can do, I'd love to do it. And I'm really hoping they're like, ah, no, that's okay. Am I the only one? Come on, somebody tell me, please. I feel like a complete idiot already today. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a sense in which, yes, we know what we're kind of supposed to do, but if we're treated like that, it's like, oh, man, I, I didn't really. See, this, this humility is, is in truth thinking of others above yourselves. It, it's, I told you Christ thought something. He made a mental assessment. Look at verse 3. This is exactly what you're called to do. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count or consider others better than yourselves. It's the exact same word that was used of, of Christ. He made a mental decision, and you as a Christian need to make a mental decision about others within the community of faith. And what is it going to look like? Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
This is the point of considering others better than ourselves. It means to care about their needs. It means not just to, to pursue our, our own desires, our, our own well-being, but those of others. We're, we're to, in a sense, spiritually, be looking to our left and right, those who are standing shoulder to shoulder with us continually, and say, how can I bless them? How can I benefit them? Is there need in my community of faith? Because if there's need, I'm supposed to look to that. That's humility. I guess I'm on this kick right now, but this is why, for me, our group's ministry here is just a big deal. It's a big deal. Because this is, this is the context in which you're probably going to live this out. There's hundreds of people in this church. You're not going to know every need. But, but if, you, if you hang out with 12 or 18 every week, you're going to know their needs. And then I think you're called to care about them. You're called to meet those needs. I was thinking about this as I was kind of putting this sermon together. And, and I thought of talking to all the small group leaders and challenging them and, and asking, do you see this type of care in your group? Do you see this type of um, meeting of needs? And, and instantly what came to my mind was Acts chapter 2. This is right after Pentecost. Peter, Peter preaches, thousands come to Christ, and here's what's said about them. Those who received his word <coughs> excuse me, were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, new Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, <coughs> excuse me, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, some of you just got scared, like, oh my gosh, is my pastor a communist? Is he going to ask me to sell everything I own? See, see, I thought about this, this text, and thought about our groups, um, and, and where those are going, and how those should flesh themselves out. And then I honestly thought this. Now, I don't want to bring this up, because it's probably going to freak people out. And then I thought, well, I don't really care who gets freaked out because this is actually what we're called to. We're called as Christians to care about one another and to meet needs. And, and, and sometimes they'll actually need meeting. Sometimes you'll offer help and someone will say, thank you because I really, really need help. If there's anything I can do, let me know. I will and I do need something. We're supposed to bear burdens. We're supposed to, to think less of ourselves and think more about the people of God. And then the world might just look at, at you and me and, and a church and say, are you absolutely nuts? I say, yep. And here's why. This is why Christ said, when they see your love for one another, they'll know about me. So here's the shape of your Christianity. You make a mental decision to place others above yourselves. 
to think of others in a very real way above yourselves. And then you act, you do something just like Christ did something. You act on that by looking to their needs and their interests. And in so doing, you're actually making a spiritual decision. All of this, if it's to be lived out, means, it, it necessitates that you are obedient to the Father. You're obedient to God's calling, to humility. Now, all of that that I taught you today will we'll be done in a second. I know this is really long. All of that that I called you today is, is or can be dead orthodoxy, what we learned about Christ, and mere legalism. If I just come in here and teach you about Christ and his pre-incarnate state, and you, you feel like you have a really cool new word to say at work tomorrow, that's great. Or if I just come in here and say, no, 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 you're supposed to not do things from ambition, and you're supposed to be humble, and you're supposed to think about other people, you say, oh, great, well, I'll try more. It's dead orthodoxy and mere legalism if we don't see this connection. Verse 5, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or your, your footnote probably says, which was also in Christ Jesus. I think it's getting at the same thing. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And then he describes all of that dead orthodoxy about the pre-incarnate Christ who's willing to lay aside his own comfort and glory and mode of being to become a slave, to give up his rights, to serve you even to the point of death on a cross. All of that dead orthodoxy is meant to inform and drive and shape your Christianity. In other words, what you believe about Jesus over here has to drive who you are as a Christian over here. In chapter 1, we read this, and I think this is an overarching principle for most of Philippians. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is what he means. Let your manner of life show how worthy Jesus is. So that when you live this out, so that when you really love people, so that when you're really humble, so that when you really care to meet needs of other people, and they say, why are you doing this? You point to Jesus at every turn and say, do you know what he's done for us? This is nothing. This is not legalism. This is a response in worship. Do you look at this? Can you see the death of my Savior? Can you see the death of the Son of God for me? Can you see his humility? Can you see his obedience? How could I not do this in response? That's not legalism. That's worship. And this is why I say the truth about Christ must, must shape your Christianity in these ways. 